A remarkable speech from the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to the Canadian Parliament this morning in which he asked Canadians to consider the possibility of Canadian cities being uh, shelled, uh, Vancouver under siege, the Canadian flag torn down in Montreal. And then Zelensky went on to ask for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Can you imagine when you, when you call your friends, your friendly nation, and you ask, please close the sky, close the airspace, please stop the bombing. How many more cruise missiles have to fall on our cities until you make this happen? And they, in return, they express their deep concerns about the situation. When we talk to, with our partners and they say, please hold on, hold on a little longer. That is Vladimir Zelensky speaking through a translator to the Canadian Parliament this morning. New polling suggests that about 47% of Canadians believe that NATO should establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine, even if that risks an escalation of the conflict. To talk more about a no-fly zone and what it really means, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn, who's a senior fellow at the Center for, a, for New American Security. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. When we say no-fly zone, uh, the usual response, the conventional wisdom from Western leaders is that that would risk an escalation, uh, invocation of Article 5, and that that would turn into World War III. Do, do you follow that uh, conventional wisdom? Is is that true? I think there are tremendous risks associated with establishing a no-fly zone over any part of Ukraine. Um, uh, hopefully, it wouldn't escalate all the way to World War III, but that risk is there and it's real. Um, no-fly zones are often, they sound like they are purely defensive operations and that's the intent behind them. Um, and it always has been, but they actually require uh, offensive combat operations to enforce them. Which means that they're they in this situation that they could lead to direct uh, NATO, Russian, or American and Russian uh, combat. Uh, in the parliament uh, today, the uh, leader of the opposition, the interim leader of the opposition party, uh, called for a no-fly zone over humanitarian corridors. Is is that realistic? I don't think so. Um, in that situation, if Russia is going to abide by the humanitarian corridors, which it has agreed to at some times, uh, no-fly zone's not necessary. They're already going to refrain from conducting combat operations in that area and allow civilians to flee. But if they're not, it still puts us in the same situation that any no-fly zone would, where NATO aircraft have to be patrolling above that area. They have to be willing to interdict, and that means shoot down any Russian aircraft that violated. Um, and they also would need to take out uh, Russia's air defenses that would cover the area that the no-fly zone was implemented in, because those ground-based air defenses, which are with Russia's maneuver units, um, could shoot down NATO aircraft um, and hold them at risk. I mentioned the polling that suggested almost half of Canadians would support a no-fly zone. I'm not sure what the uh, where the American public is. Is it your sense that the American administration is committed to staying away from a no-fly zone, or is there any weakening in that area? I haven't seen any signs that the administration is uh, interested in implementing a no-fly zone because they're aware of the risks associated with it. I do think that there is a tremendous uh, 
impulse to help and that um, Americans want to help the Ukrainians and to help defend them if they can. And there's certainly been a bit of a push for this in some quarters in Congress. Um, but at the same time, that impulse to do something needs to be smart. There's a lot that the international community can do in terms of supporting Ukrainian defenders, providing them with different types of weapons so that they can actually um, more ably defend themselves versus uh, getting directly involved. I'm speaking with Dr. Stacy Pettyjohn, who is from the Center for a New American Security. Much has been said about the attack on Ukraine rewriting the world order um, and basically ending uh, the post-World War II order. Uh, can you tell me what, where do we go from here? I think that is a huge question mark right now, um, and a lot is going to depend on how the war in Ukraine ends. And um, there's significant uncertainty as to what Moscow's war aims are here. It seemed to want to uh, impose a regime change on Ukraine, but that doesn't appear obtainable anymore. Um, so what they're trying to achieve and whether they can actually achieve it on the battlefield is one question. Geopolitically, there obviously has been a tremendous shift um, within the international community and within Europe in particular in terms of countries uh, deciding that they need to invest more in defense and take greater steps to reinforce uh, NATO's defenses and NATO's borders, which is a pretty dramatic shift from what we've seen, even with the 2014 invasions of Crimea and the Donbass previously. So um, uh, I don't know if the entire international order has uh, changed yet. Um, that sort of depends on what happens here. If we were to escalate and uh, to actually get, if NATO were to get directly involved and somehow engage in direct combat with Russia, that could be a huge sea change, especially if nuclear weapons were used. Um, but hopefully it does not come to that. Uh, absolutely. I'll second that. Uh, Dr. Pettyjohn, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. That's Stacey Pettyjohn, who is a senior fellow and director of the defense program at the Center for a New American Security.